Hi, everyone. My name is Michelle from the Table in Uniontown. Thanks for tuning into our podcast this week. We're happy you're here. This is the live recording from this Sunday's sermon. We're currently in our sermon series, A Living Faith, discussing the book of James. We hope that as you listen, you'll more deeply understand the truth of God's word and how much he loves you. Let's jump in. I was in the back holding hands with my son during that last song, and I started to walk away, and he said, Daddy, and I said, oh, buddy, let me tell you something. I I have to go up and preach. Do you want to watch me? He said, no. (laughs) The reading this morning is from James 3, 13 through 18, which is the end of the chapter. I'll give you a moment this morning to turn there in your Bibles. Of course, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, it'll be on the screen behind me. If you do not have a Bible at all, or at least one that you can understand plainly, then please come see me afterwards, and I'd love to put one in your hands. Who among you is wise and understanding? By his good conduct, he should show that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without pretense. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. This is the word of the Lord. While we're not sure who coined the phrase, it has been famously repeated that it is better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. This week we continue to discuss the second of the major themes of James, which is wisdom and speech. And we're going to try to answer the question this morning, how can we live as wise in the ways of God rather than the world. Last week, uh, he, James, was talking about this type of duplicitous speech, this type of sort of double-minded living and thinking that leads to double-tongued speech. And immediately then following all of that conversation, he asks, who among you is wise and understanding? He's, He's saying, if, with all that being said, there's someone among you that is wise and understanding, How would that person act? How would that person live? How would we know that they're wise and understanding? A lot of people claim to be wise and to know a lot, but James essentially says there is a litmus test for wisdom. And in fact, he strangely enough doesn't contrast in this morning's passage wisdom and folly, which is what you might expect, uh, but instead he contrasts two different types of wisdom, One which I believe he actually thinks is folly anyways. And and this isn't unlike our current cultural moment where there are two competing wisdoms. A wisdom that is kingdom wisdom, which is of God, and a wisdom of the world or of the age. We have a wisdom that comes by the Spirit and bears certain fruit in our lives. And honestly, it bears out in our societies over the course of history. And there's a worldly wisdom that bears a different type of fruit and bears itself out differently in society. And the world... Our world, the world, uh, 
very clearly doesn't like relish in living foolishly, but instead believes that it is actually very wise. And so James this morning says, fine, I'll play by your terms. We'll call it wisdom, but I'll tell you about what that sort of wisdom is really like. And so he begins with this question though, who among you is wise and understanding? By his good conduct, he should show, stop there, mid-verse. You want to see a wise person? Doesn't matter if we're talking about a teacher. Doesn't matter if we're talking about someone like me up here. It doesn't matter if we're talking about another Christian person you know. If you suspect someone might be wise, you hear what they say, hear what they teach, hear the great advice they freely give away, all of that. Here's the litmus test. Look at their life. Look at their life. Look at how they live. Wisdom isn't just words spoken. Wisdom is a life lived out. And if you think you're wise, look at how you live because wisdom is lived out. You might know some things, you know. You might have been coming to church now for a minute. You might believe even. You might know some things now. You might be able to teach some people a thing or two about this Bible, about God. But don't let yourself think that you've made it to the the place of deepest wisdom because of that alone. Instead, look at your life. How are you living? Wisdom isn't just like in your head. Wisdom is what your hands and your feet do in light of what you know. Wisdom is what your mouth says in light of what you know. I don't say that to discourage you at all. I just say it to help you to continue on the right path, the path that that James is really setting you on. Faith without works is dead. Knowledge that is never lived out, that never changes your life, it never becomes wisdom. By his good conduct, he should show that his works are done by the gentleness that comes from wisdom. We know that gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit, and we also see here gentleness is a byproduct of wisdom. If you have wisdom, you will be gentle. If you have wisdom, you will be gentle. Gentleness is something that you have a lot of opportunities to show in your life. Gentleness is something that is both valued and scorned in our culture, if you think about it. You can, you can take a short little browse on the, on the old internet, and it, it won't take you long, especially on social media, it won't take you long to hear someone advising you that you should be gentle with yourself. We are big as a culture on being gentle with our own selves. And I don't see this as bad. I actually think it's great and necessary and it's a lesson that I have had to learn over the years. I need to be gentle with myself. Our culture affirms that. But we aren't necessarily so good at gentleness towards everyone. In a a very polarized United States of America where the right and the left couldn't be further apart, we're good at being gentle with people whom our tribe says to be gentle with. When you're a public speaker, by the way, you're supposed to say the right and the left, but this is my left arm, so I just do it wrong, and when you're watching me, it's the wrong side. Anyways, I had that thought, and I was like, don't say that out loud, and then I said another line, I was like, I'm going to say that thing out loud. Anyways, yeah, that's what are you supposed to do? We are good at being gentle with people whom our tribe says to be gentle with. We are good at being gentle with people who are like us. But I think the greatest show of gentleness that wisdom brings will come from how we treat those people who aren't like us. People who we don't agree with, who hold positions or have dispositions that we find to be the most frustrating. Are we gentle with those people? 
It's not hard to be gentle with people you like or have great sympathy for most of the time. But it's, it's a measure of true gentleness when your impulse is to be harsh, but you resist the urge. Are you harsh or are you gentle? Your words, your demeanor, physically, of course, all of it, are you harsh or are you gentle? That, the answer to that question might be indicative of your wisdom level. Verse 14, but if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. If you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, if, regardless of what you say you believe or how wise you think you are, instead of gentleness, you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast about being wise in the eyes of God and deny the truth. Bitter envy, that's, that's the type that seeks the best for yourself, that looks out for your own interest without any thought of what might be best for anyone else. It's the kind of envy that wishes someone else would have less than you in terms of things or experiences or opportunities. It's, the, it's like the ultimate one-upper. If you've seen those SNL sketches from back in the day featuring Kristen Wiig, anybody remember the one-upper? Yeah, good. Not, not only do you have the desire to have what others have and more, but you also desire for them to not have it because if they have it and you don't have it, then what does that say about you? And if, you, if they have it and you do have it, but in equal measure, what does that say about you, right? It might mean you're not exceptional. It might mean you're not special. It might mean you're not above them. You're not a unicorn. You're not a one of one. And so this, this bitter envy in this passage, it's a really dark kind of envy. Coveting is prohibitive, obviously, in the Ten Commandments, but this is a specifically heinous sort of coveting, isn't it? Selfish ambition. Michael Townsend in his commentary on James says that the word translated here, selfish ambition, is commonly used in in settings of sectarian rivalry or partisan politics, which we have much, much context for in our culture. And Craig Blomberg, another scholar, comments that the image appears of people in angry competition, undermining one another, and fighting each for their own rights. This paired with the intense one-upmanship of selfish ambition is the complete antithesis of the gentleness that characterizes godly wisdom. But it isn't just the worldly wisdom of the first century. It's the worldly wisdom of today, of our current culture. It's a dog-eat-dog world, and you need to climb the ladder of upward mobility regardless of who you step over to get to the top. You have to compete with the Joneses, get all the best stuff, have the best reputation, go on the best vacations. And also at the same time, you need to have the loudest, most intimidating voice speaking your mind. You have to speak your truth, never let anyone tell you you're wrong. Fight harshly against your ideological opponents, against your political opponents, because of course you're right and they're just oh so lost. Never mind that they're people made in God's image. You just need to say what you need to say to win the argument, right? If those are things you do, James says. If that's how you live, James says. Remember, he's talking to to self-proclaimed Christians here in this letter. If that's how you live, Christians, then don't boast and deny the truth. Don't brag as though you're you're wise in the ways of God and deny the truth. What truth is he talking about? I think it's in the next verse. 
that this is not the wisdom coming down from above. When, where James told us in, in chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, that true wisdom and every good and perfect gift comes from above. This kind of wisdom, this kind of life doesn't display that wisdom. Instead, what kind of wisdom does he say it is? It's earthly, it's natural, it's demonic. If you're living that kind of life, if that's how you see the best way to navigate life in our world, if that's how you want to get ahead, if that's how you want to compete and have relationships and treat people you disagree with, fine. But James says, don't claim that you have godly wisdom. If you want to say you have wisdom at all, living like that, then just know that that wisdom is earthly and it's natural and it's demonic. And what are these three things in opposition to? Earthly, natural, and demonic. The antithesis of heavenly, spiritual, and godly. Earthly, natural, and demonic, it's the opposite of heavenly, spiritual, godly wisdom. It's it's bad, it's demonic. That's, That's its origin. That's the origin of of bitter envy and selfish ambition. So, So if you have those qualities, you better quickly... Do whatever it takes to rid your life of those qualities. Worth noting here, uh, earthly, natural, and demonic, that mirrors the three great enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. If you wish to defeat these things that seek to keep you from God at all costs, you must rid yourselves of things such as selfish ambition and bitter envy. Why are these two things so bad? Verse 16, For where there is envy and selfish ambition... There is disorder and every evil practice. See, when, when these two things are in your life, they don't come alone. They bring their friends. They bring disorder. The root word has appeared twice previously in James' epistle since we've started studying it. In, verse, in chapter 1, verse 8, chapter 3, verse 8, it is uh, unstable or uncontrollable. This, the meaning of this word can range from sort of mild to violent. One commentator describes this word uh, connotating something of the bad associations of our word anarchy. That's a, it's an inside-out type of disorder or anarchy. Both, both disordered desires inside of us and then disorderly behaviors and actions coming out, culminating possibly in the church being swayed into disorder by people who live this way. It should not be so for the community of believers. Craig Blomberg, whose commentary has been useful in this series, says this. This chaos ruins the credibility of the church in the eyes of the world and the ability of the church to minister effectively in its own congregation. When we fight for power in Christian circles, evil establishes a foothold. When we operate with worldly values, seeking our own honor and status, we even offer Satan an entrance into the house of God. Our actions no longer demonstrate our faith, but rather show our commitment to the world and its standards of behavior. I've seen this before. I've seen seen churches who fill their boards with with the most business-savvy people who may not have the most spiritual wisdom. They're ran by people who have a great sense of keeping an organization going, yet a, a, a small idea of how to follow Jesus. I want this church to be a place that succeeds and does ministry for a long time in Uniontown, but that does it the right way and by the right wisdom. I want it to be a church where people love one another and where they love their community. And that love comes first and ahead of any differences we have. And everything we do here comes out of love because why be a church except for the fact that you love Jesus and you, you want to see him get all the glory 
and you want people to know him. In fact, you're just so desperate to see people come to know him because you know him and because he's absolutely changed your life and because to you there's nothing better in this whole world than knowing Jesus. And if that's true of you, where is envy? What is there to be jealous of? If you have Jesus, what more could you ask for? And if that's true of you, where is selfish ambition? You're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. What could be higher? What higher position could you ask for? You are Jesus's and he is yours. And one day you'll be with him and you'll have all that is his. If Jesus is all you've ever wanted, then one day you will get everything you've ever wanted. Is that good news? Is that good news or what? One day you will have Jesus. Think about that for a second. And if you're sitting here this morning and you don't want Jesus, or if you, you sort of do, but he's, he's not enough for you, you want Jesus and some other stuff too, if, if he's not your one thing, if he's not your everything, then it's a tough road to go down. And you will probably appeal to demonic, worldly, unspiritual sorts of wisdom to get those other things. But if it's just Jesus for you and all the other stuff is just sort of icing on the cake, you can hold everything else open-handed. You don't have to scratch and claw your way to the top. You don't have to envy and covet. You don't have to fight and argue with other people. So then how do you get to live? What's the kind of wisdom we want to and get to live by? What's the, what's the good kind of wisdom? Verse 17 and 18. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without pretense, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. Our initial question at the beginning of this message this morning was, how can we live as wise in God's understanding of wisdom rather than the world's? And here is our answer. So far, we've mostly talked about how not to live. We've talked about what the world's wisdom looks like. Here's our answer, though. Wisdom from above is, first of all, pure. It is ethically and morally blameless. Wisdom is certainly that. God's wisdom doesn't produce any evil, so when we do something evil, we can know that we've followed like a little rabbit trail of earthly wisdom. This true wisdom, it avoids the double-mindedness, the double-tongueness that, that James finds so reprehensible in the letter up to this point. Pure, if meaning without blemish, means that it is unstained by this world, to use James' own language in chapter 1, verse 27. Not only is it pure, but it's peace-loving. The worldly wisdom is the antithesis of peace-loving. It, it was this anarchy of jealousy and strife and argumentative discontent. But the wisdom of God, it loves peace. Now, peace-loving doesn't mean peacekeeping. It doesn't mean keeping your mouth shut when something isn't right or when someone's being mistreated. It doesn't mean letting yourself be mistreated every time. It doesn't mean becoming a doormat or expecting all Christians to be doormats. It isn't any of those things. Some, would, some people, though, and you, you know them, if they're sitting to your left or right, don't look at them. Some people love to argue. Some people love to argue. You know anyone who loves to argue? Yeah, so, yeah. you're just kind of, some people are like, eh. you know someone who loves to disagree? Do you know anyone like that? Don't look at your spouse. You've got to go home with them. Some people love drama, and there's no other way to put it. 
That is so foolish. That's such foolish wisdom, if there is such a thing. But to really be wise is to love peace. To say, it might mean like, I have to speak up because this is unjust. But I really, what I really want is for this person to repent and for everyone to be in a better place and to just get along and love each other. I have to say something because this person is hurting me and I can't allow that. But I just want to see them flourish and for them to grow and for them to be better because of this incident. Wisdom isn't, oh man, I I want them to pay and I want them to suffer for what they've done. That is worldly wisdom. I want them to see, I want to see them get what's coming to them. I want karma. That's not God's wisdom. God's wisdom, peace-loving, peacemaking wisdom says, I want them to grow. I want them to, to, to flourish. I want them to experience God's love and for us to get along and to even be brothers or sisters or whatever again. Do you love peace? Do you desire peace? Do you want to be at peace? The wisdom that comes from above is gentle. James started this section talking about gentleness, and he circles back around to it, and that at very least should tell you that this must be really important to James. This must be an essential facet of wisdom from above, so much so that he mentioned it twice. And gentleness is an underrated and even under-considered quality that I think James is trying to put right back to the forefront of our mind here. This gentleness is described by scholar R. Kent Hughes as this, and I love this. A kind of person who, though wronged and possessing the right not to bend, nevertheless foregoes his right. Do you know what he means? When you're wronged and you have the right to not let it slide. You have the right to not let it slide. You're well within your rights to say something. But you don't hold on to that right. And you overlook it sometimes. Another Bible translation translates the same word here as, as leniency, lenient, gentle, or lenient. The selfish ambition of the wisdom from below would not lead a person to be like this. Remember, it would lead one who is wrong to cling to that right to get their justice. But the peaceable, gentle Christian The peaceable, gentle Christian is one who can show leniency. This person is also in our translation called compliant. Other translations say open to reason or accommodating, willing to yield, open to persuasion. Those with the wisdom from above will hear you out. They will listen. They don't have the predetermined truth always just decided in their head as if they have nothing left to learn. They want to learn from you they will consider your points. Let's reason together. No defensiveness. You ever want to have a discussion with somebody about what's true and the person's posture is so closed off that you can tell their mind is the same, like solemn expression, arms crossed in front of them? You ever seen that? Sometimes, sometimes you look at like 20 people doing that at once and you're like, what did I just say? <laughs> But you know, you've had this you've had this happen to you in a conversation before. 99 times out of 100 if that is their posture, they are not going to be able to hear you. Probably because someone taught them at some point in their life to be wrong is to be bad. To be wrong is to not be lovable. To be wrong is to not be acceptable. Here's why Christians can possess and should possess this quality of being willing to yield. When we believe the gospel, we learn that we are wrong in a lot of ways. 
We sin by doing the wrong things. We commit sins of omission by not doing the right things. And we do, we do the right things for the wrong reasons. So even we sin in terms of our motives alone, even when our actions are right. And yet, we are loved. We are so deeply loved in spite of all of our flaws. We are more flawed than we could ever have thought, and yet we are more loved than we would ever dare to dream. And so for the Christian, being wrong shouldn't be a shock to the system. We're no strangers to finding out that we're wrong. It's never, never a threat to who we are in Christ. And so when we have conversations with others and our ideas are being held up and questioned, even if our own actions or motives are being questioned, we shouldn't be closed off, arms in front of us. Because for us, it's okay to be wrong okay to be wrong. So let's be compliant. Let's be open to reason, open to persuasion, accommodating, willing to yield to another person. Let's be that way. It's wise to be that way. And how else does one with this wisdom from above live? Full of mercy and good fruits. We live merciful because we have received so much mercy. The only wise response, as James has already pointed out in this letter so far, to receiving mercy is paying mercy forward. Have you been forgiven of many sins? Some of you have done some sinning in your day. Freely forgive the many sins of others against you. Be full of the good fruit of a heart changed by God, a, a, a heart being made good. And then our translation this morning said unwavering and without pretense. This can be simply translated as impartial and not hypocritical or impartial and sincere. One commentator puts it like this, without uncertainty and without insincerity. And he says, the former word demands a firm commitment of mind and heart and the latter an equally firm commitment of a matching life. Unwavering and without pretense, unwavering in your commitment to Jesus and his kingdom and without pretense, no hypocrisy, no putting on a show for church people to think you're any better than you are. Just being your genuine self with all of your warts and struggles exactly where you are with Jesus in the present moment. This community has always sought to be a place where you can be just that, exactly who you are. No faking it here, no needing to seem super spiritual, where you can just bring the real you to the community of faith and let the real Jesus go to work on your heart. James ends, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. We just talked about how to be wise, and, and he puts a lid on it with this admittedly complicated phrase. I think the gist of it is wise people sow the fruit of righteousness, this just pure goodness that overflows from a heart changed by God and centered on Jesus. So that out of that, they sow or they live out the implications of that in peace and they, in being who they are in Christ, they also cultivate or bring about peace wherever they go. Douglas Moo, another New Testament scholar, puts it this way. The fruit of righteousness is not only sown by the peacemakers, but they also enjoy the results of their work. Are you wise in the ways of God? Peace will follow you. You will make peace. You, you will leave a, a trail of peace wherever you go. It's not an absolute. Other, other people may be sowing discord around you. Obviously, you're not creating a utopia. It, it does take two to tango. But even in scenarios where there are people creating anything but peace, this is what's true. 
You will have peace if you are wise towards God. And as the scriptures point out and say, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Michelle, you can come up. There are two wisdoms. One is a wide gate. One is a narrow one. One leads to looking out for number one and storing up all you can for you and for your tribe in this life. One leads to a life of self-sacrificial love. One leads to death. One leads to life. One wisdom begins with following your appetites above all else. The other begins with denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus. Jesus, who on the night that he was betrayed, took the bread, and after he gave thanks, he broke it, saying, This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and again, after giving thanks, he said, This is a new covenant I'm making with you and my blood for the forgiveness of sins. We take communion every week, remembering Jesus and his death and his resurrection. The wisdom that he imparted that to gain your life, you must for his sake lose it. What wisdom have you prized in your life? What things did James bring up this morning that resonated with you? I would encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal your own heart, your own motives this morning, and ask how God would have you respond to his word for you. And then when you're ready, when you've spent some time with the Lord and you're ready, you can stand up and take communion on your own by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup. Communion is available towards the back on my left gluten-free communion towards the back on my right. My friends Randy and Rachel are going to be available on either side of the room. If you need somebody to just put a hand on your shoulder and come alongside you in prayer, whether it be for yourself, for wisdom, whether it be for somebody that you love that's going through it right now, whatever you need prayer for, they're here for that. I'm going to pray and then you're dismissed to do what you need to do. Father, I am grateful for your wisdom. We get so confused. We we see counterfeit wisdoms in our culture and, and they seem sensible and they might even feel true to us and we chase after them, not realizing that they're folly. God, you give us the Holy Spirit so that we might know your voice, that we might know what wisdom is from you. Would you deepen our sense, our perceptiveness of that? Would you help us to be wise in your ways? In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening to our Sunday service. If you're interested in joining us in the future, you can find us at 17766 Cleveland Avenue Northwest on Sunday mornings at 10. Additionally, we host a meal every first and third Sunday after service in order to fellowship with one another. Visit aseatforyou.org for more information. We hope you'll join us next week. Go in peace.